Hey folks, Preet here. I hope you enjoy this episode of Cyberspace with John Carlin in conversation with Alex Stamos. As always, write to us with your thoughts and questions at letters at cafe.com. From Cafe, welcome to Cyberspace. I'm your host, John Carlin. Today marks the official launch of this podcast. Every other Friday, we'll be exploring the key issues at the intersection of tech, law, and policy. I'll be joined by a range of guests who've made an impact in the world of cybersecurity. My guest this week is Alex Stamos. He served as the chief security officer at Facebook, where he led an investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 election. He was previously the chief information security officer at Yahoo, where he dealt with a number of major cyber attacks from nation state actors. Today, he teaches at Stanford and leads the university's internet observatory. He also recently took on a role with Zoom, helping the company with security challenges brought on by its exponential growth during the pandemic. There's much to discuss, and I'm thrilled to have Alex Stamos on this program. Welcome, Alex. Uh, great to be talking to you again. And I wanted to start really with, with your background a little bit. You've had a long career in tech, including time as a successful entrepreneur and executive at Yahoo and Facebook. Although, as we'll get into a little bit more, sometimes I wonder if, if hiring you means instant crisis. But let me just take you back a little bit. Is, is this the path you envisioned when you majored in electrical engineering and computer science at UC Berkeley? Uh, not exactly. Um, you know, I was always interested in computer security, but like other security people of my generation, you know, most of the training that we got was very unofficial, I think you would say. You know, there's really no good way if you're growing up in the 80s and early 90s uh, to learn about security in a way that's, you know, completely legal and allowed. Uh, so, you know, did some things on a Commodore 64 and then a PC with, you know, starting with a 300 baud modem uh, and hanging out with friends and the like. And, you know, back then, Security stuff was just kind of fun, right? Like going and breaking into BBSs and, you know. So BBS is, you know, pre-internet. If you wanted to hang out with your friends online, you dial into what's called the bulletin board system. So you dial in with your with your modem, uh, and often people would be interacting asynchronously because a lot of BBSs only had one or two phone lines. Um, so you could go write messages while you're dialed in, go off, come back 24 hours later, see what people have done. Um, but also, you know, what was big for kids those days was was trading uh, video games and tips on how to crack them and such. And that's actually how I, I first learned how to do some reverse engineering, was breaking the copy protection on my Commodore 64 games and learning all that from BBSs. Was there a particular game you remember cracking? Uh, yes, actually. There's a really fun game called uh, Red Storm Rising, which was a submarine simulator based upon the, the Tom Clancy book. It was the best Commodore 64 game and also very expensive. Got, got myself a copy of that. But, you know, at, at the time, it, again, it was just kind of this innocent time when, you know, doing this kind of stuff was not incredibly impactful in people's lives. And technology was just this kind of side thing, right? Like, you know, my most of my life did not revolve around tech, even for a super nerd. Uh, and just kind of amazing to think what has happened since then, that now technology plays like such a more central part of everybody's life, uh, especially somebody, you know, who's interested in, in it, like I was. War games, what, what if any, uh, this is a 1984, I think, around movie starring Matthew Broderick about a kid who hacks into the Department of Defense and nearly starts a nuclear war. Spoiler alert. But um, did, did you see it and what impact did it have? I did, yeah. I mean, the two biggest, most impactful movies for me in the 
computer space was war games, which is exactly the kind of stuff that me and these these kids who would go to this 2600 meetup. So there's a, a, a magazine called the Hacker Quarterly 2600. Do you, I'm sure you've seen it. Do you know where the 2600 comes from? This is actually a quiz I give my students. I do not. There's a man named Captain Crunch, actually, who I believe also went to Berkeley, but back like in the 60s, who figured out that the whistle in the Captain Crunch cereal box made a perfect 2600 hertz tone, which turns out to be the tone <laughs> by which the local AT&T office would signal the uh, long distance switch. And so if you use that whistle, you could then uh, steal long distance calls. So anyway, this is exactly the kind of stuff that we talk about in war games. He does what's now called war dialing, which is he just goes through and dials a bunch of phone numbers until he finds computers. And that's the exactly kind of thing that uh, a bunch of, of, of kids would do in, in those days. Um, again, with no like malicious purpose, just to like see what was out there and what was hanging out. And um, it was you know, a pretty good time. The, the other movie that really had impact on me was Sneakers, right? Which is the Robert Redford uh, movie in which uh, he and a bunch of, his friends have a, a company that are professional hackers uh, and they get paid to fix stuff, which effectively became uh, a career goal of mine that I was able to fulfill a little bit later. For those, you know, it's pandemic time at home looking for something to, to watch. It's a good time to, to rewatch both those movies. And Sneakers has an incredible, incredible cast, <laughs> not just Robert Redford. Right, right. It's uh, Dan Aykroyd, um, David uh, Stathern, and, uh, you know, uh, James Earl Jones uh, makes a cameo, uh, as you pretty much, right? And, you know, as a high up guy in the national security establishment. <laughs> it was pre, pre-national pre security division, but I'll, but I'll take it, even though I'm not sure it's, it's the best, <laughs> it's the best messaging for it. The um, war games, I always find it an interesting one. I know we've talked about this before, because in addition to in, influencing a young uh, Alex Stamos, it also, uh, for President Reagan, caused him to ask the question, could this happen to us, apparently, and was really the beginnings of the first government programs when the answer was, yes, it could happen to us, and we're not really prepared for it. Yeah, it's interesting. And that whole time is, like, looking back, kind of the relationship between teenage hackers and the government was very complicated and weird, right? Uh, some guys I ended up working with later were part of a group called MOD, Masters of Destruction, which was oh, like a proto-hacking yeah. group in New York that the Secret Service, I think, called the greatest, you know, cyber terrorist in the world or something. And, you know, they turn out to be all these kids that go to the same school in the Upper East Side. <laughs> <laughs> which often, we'll get to it later, but the recent Twitter hack, I think... You still, you still have that that phenomenon uh, going on, right? Well, but, but I mean, this is the difference now, right? Like, if you're 17 and you have these skills, and you don't very carefully stay on the the beaten path, you will end up in a very dark place, right? I think that's actually, you know, it, it is. There's so many more options for young people now. There's good options, right? You can participate in um, online hacking clubs. Like just yesterday, I, I did a a webcast with a thing called Hack Club, which is like this international group of teenagers that are interested in computer security. And they all participate in capture the flag competitions. They participate in official bug bounties. Oh, and explain, let's take, take a step back. Yeah. Explain what capture the flag yeah. competition is. So capture the flag or a CTF is uh, a competition where you have kind of an artificial network set up and you compete to break into computers and to get the flag, which is usually a file that sits on a computer. Um, and so that's, that's kind of an artificial official game. And it's something that I actually used to participate a lot in. I'm too old now. My skills are, you know, I'd have to be in the seniors division uh, of hacking if I did that. <laughs> they should make that. They should, they should make that. They should be. <laughs> right. Just like with swimming, time. they call it masters, right? Like yeah. that just means old. You know, if you're a young person and you want to learn to hack, you can be part of a competition. There's um, 
schools can have teams now, right? Like at some high schools, it is a varsity sport to do hacking, which I think is incredible and awesome and a great opportunity. Um, and then if you want to go up against real systems and not in kind of these artificial playlands, you can go up against companies that have announced you're allowed to hack us and we will pay you. And so there's all these great opportunities for students, but there's also a huge downside, which is if you fall into effectively the wrong crowd, um, you will get pulled into a criminal underground that didn't really exist when 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 I was coming up. We've talked a little bit about the fork in the road for current kids where you can go down the path of being paid by companies to find vulnerabilities so that uh, they can fix them and essentially getting paid for gaming, which is the capture the flag or bug bounty programs. And then on the other hand, that there's this dark criminal underworld where you can also end up getting paid and uh, kids end up faced, faced with a choice or exploring one path or the other. What, what would you say helped, which experience helped shape your thinking about technology and policy and, and put you, I think, on the path of a law-abiding, <laughs> law-abiding citizen? Of mostly law-abiding mostly. citizen? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I had a very, I was very fortunate in my childhood, right? So, you know, I had very supportive parents, grew up in a very stable household in suburban Sacramento, uh, went to a good public high school, was able to get good grades and, and go to Berkeley and so, you know, like there was none of those things that maybe, you know, other kids pushed them off the path, right? Plus, I, you know, we're a immigrant family, Stomatopoulos, and I had a grandfather, Andrew Vrakas, uh, Andreas Vrakas from Cyprus, who had, you know, really kind of nailed into me like the importance of education. That was his big thing. He, he had left Cyprus. He had a fifth grade education because he was the oldest boy in the family and had been pulled out of school to, to work on the family farm. And so, you know, when you're the grandson of a literal goat herder, you know, there's a kind of a, <laughs> there's that kind of immigrant expectations on your shoulder. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that helped. And, and, and I had that opportunity, right? Like I could go to Cal and I could take real classes. Now, there wasn't a lot you could study in security. There was only one security class in the late 90s there. This is actually an interesting kind of mirror image of what's going on right now around trust and safety, which is the same problem. But at the time, you couldn't go to a university and learn a lot about security. So I, I took a graduate class by David Wagner, really famous now professor at the time. He was like a brand new professor, just got his PhD, and then was able to you know get a good job and do this stuff professionally. So you get out of Berkeley and you end up just three years later co-founding ISEC Partners, a security consulting firm that ends up becoming, you know, really big success. And as, as you're saying, there was barely any coursework. Sounds like you went and found the one course that you could find at Berkeley. How'd you end up in the security space? Yeah, I mean, it was always something I was I was interested in doing professionally. I mean, the nice thing about going, you know, and I do always recommend to young people, if you have the ability to go get a real computer science or electrical engineering education, it is still incredibly important for security. Now, some of the best hackers I know dropped out of school, didn't go to school. But if, if it is an opportunity for you, it, it is still important because security is about about breaking the layers of abstraction in a system, right? Like that computers are so incredibly complex that even the people that program them have basic assumptions about how they work. And it turns out those basic assumptions are often false. They're good enough to go build something that works. They're not good enough to build something that works securely. And so studying computers down to the lowest level can often be a, a really good skill. But yeah, I, I, I graduated in the dot-bomb right after the collapse of the dot-com industry. I had a job offer at a company called LoudCloud, which was Mark Andreessen's company after Netscape. It was really the first cloud computing company. It just it was a cloud computing company that predated all the technology that makes cloud computing profitable now. Uh, <laughs> so it was just a little ahead of its time. Uh, and I graduated into that. 
uh, and they end up pulling back my job offer. Uh, and then I have a very distinct memory of doing this trip through Europe with my sister for like my 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 post college trip and uh, being in the basement of the train station in Florence, Italy, and logging into a web cafe. So here I am, like now looking back, I'm like, wait. So I I went into like this random computer in this train station in Italy and I typed in my password to get my email. But that's how you did it. And then them saying like, oh. Because we are legally required under our PCI, our credit card requirements, to have a security engineer, we're going to have to give you your job, which is like, it was great to get an email. It was like, <laughs> we are required to hire you, so we're going to roll eyes, uh, actually follow through. Um, but that was a, a great experience and uh, did some other stuff. I worked for a company called At Stake, uh, which was kind of a consulting company famously full of uh, ex-hackers and a fascinating group of people. Hey, just to pause, though, for a second, that's an example of, so there's a, there's essentially a, a public-private regulation that says there's certain ways you need to protect credit card information um, in the PCI rules, and but for that, you would not have gotten your first job in security. Yeah, I think so. It, it, this is, this is, it wasn't called PCI just to be, you know, you're going to get email at the time. It was like, I forget exactly what it was called. Like before the Payment Card Industry Council existed, there was some other security standard from the credit card industry. But yes, it was only because they had a regulatory requirement to have somebody with this title uh, that I eventually get the job. So I expect you to be thankful throughout this for regulation. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> Look, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll get to that part. I, I'm definitely pro-regulation. I just think it should be tied to reality. Um, but uh, yeah, and so I worked at AtStake, which is a consultancy. AtStake got bought. And what year was this, roughly? I was 25. This is 2004, right? So AtStake gets bought by Symantec, and a bunch of friends and I were like, we don't want to go sell antivirus for Symantec. That was not our, our plan. And so we end up going and uh, starting our own company, and it was an incredible experience. I mean, we bootstrapped it. We all threw a couple grand in to buy our first laptops. Uh, the first data center was the closet. So my, my wife and I had just gotten married. We moved into a place in the Sunset District of San Francisco. So it was nice and cool. So uh, I literally had a stack of computers in the closet and then just opened the window for ventilation. And she called it the door of din because we had these machines running continuously <laughs> in the closet under her shoes. And uh, yeah, we started this company and it turned into something pretty great. It, we were just really well-timed uh, because all of us were specialists in application security. And this is the time, the 2004 timeframe, when the thrust of security interest inside of corporations was switching from what we call network security, which is you know mapping out networks, getting past firewalls, using vulnerabilities in software that you buy from somebody else, like an Oracle or Microsoft, to software security about the software that companies build themselves. Uh, and so we were just pretty well positioned for that. And then we made some good bets, like we got into mobile security very early. Um, and that turned out to be a really good bet. And, you know, being in the right place at the right time is a pretty important thing. So you're sitting there, uh, you know, in your, in, your, in your one bedroom with the floor shaking from the door of DIN, <laughs> yes. and you managed to pull off uh, getting some heavy-hitting clients, which I think you're explaining, including Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon. And it sounds like some of that is your right place, right time, great expertise. But, but how'd you pull that off? How'd you get them to trust someone working out of Centrally's basement? Well, you know, all of us had worked as consultants before for, for AtStake, so a couple of those relationships were pre-existing. Um, probably the most important was Microsoft, right? So I, I had done, at that point, a lot of work at Microsoft for AtStake. This is right after, you know, the famous... Uh, letter from Bill Gates out to the entire company, the trustworthy computing memo, where he said, you know, we as a company are going to pivot to, you know, build software that is more secure and more trustworthy. Well, there's a, a lot of invention that has to take place. Take, for example, the issue of privacy. Uh, that holds a lot of people back from using the internet. How do you describe to a user, say, when they provide their credit card or they 
you know, do a transaction, how do you describe to them in a simple way how that information is going to be used so right. that, say, when they come back to that site, it'll be customized for their use. That's to their benefit. But unless you can come up with a way of describing it and really assuring them, then people will always underuse what's possible on the Internet. So privacy is a perfect example of something that we need brilliant work. It's not just man hours. Yeah. Um, take the idea of you get email that interrupts you. Right. Now, some email is super important and you should be interrupted. And other email you should get when you're not um, busy. And some, and you some get. email you should never get. Exactly. And why can't the computer do that? Well, it's not just man hours to solve that problem. We have, I think, brilliant people on it. Uh, but it's, you know, it's not like they can write down, okay, that's 500 hours of work there. They've got to invent, um, and that's, that's why it's a, a research topic. And a big part of that was then Microsoft hiring outside hackers to come in and help them fix stuff. And we, I had done a bunch of that work already, and then the day of the announcement that Symantec was buying this older this company, Microsoft kicked all the consultants off because they were already in some kind of antitrust lawsuit or something with, with Symantec. And so there was this opportunity of, you know, they knew us, we gave them a huge discount. This is an opportunity for them to pick up some talent cheaply, and it, it worked out really well. So Microsoft was kind of our cornerstone client for a while. But then, you know, as our we built a reputation, and the other thing we did is we did a lot of public research. And that's, I think, still an important thing for new consultants and new security experts starting out is to get out there and do original research in, in new kinds of vulnerabilities, new classes of issues, and then go talk about them publicly, you know, preferably in an ethical way, in a, a way that actually helps things. Um, so we, we did a lot of that, and that was a, a really good kind of marketing and uh, sales strategy for us. And uh, our, our paths overlapped in a way, although we didn't meet. Um, but with the Aurora attacks, and maybe we could just spend a moment... Uh, reminding our listeners, could, could you explain the Aurora attacks and, and what happened? So we're talking about early 2010. Our company was doing lots of work for Google. They had originally brought us in to work on the ship software. So at, you know, Google had made that transition from being a web-only company to shipping operating systems. And they had known that we had done a lot of work for Microsoft on operating system security. And it's actually quite a different model of the kinds of things you do. Um, so we, we were doing a lot of work for Google. We were also doing a decent amount of instant response work uh, for companies that had been broken into. And I get a call from the Google folks and, and go over, and they explained to me that they had uncovered a breach into Google that had lasted for quite a long time. And in investigating that, they had found a command and control system uh, that was behind a dynamic DNS name. And they had gone and taken that over and, and pointed it at their own computer. And when they did so, you know, their goal was to find all of the infected machines inside of the Google network. But what they found was that there's over 20 other companies that had been hacked too by the same campaign and that they had traced it back now that they had control of that kind of intermediate system to China. Uh, and they believed that this was related to the Chinese military. Late last year, a student group that criticizes China's rule in Tibet learned false emails were being sent in their name and some of their email accounts provided by Google had been hacked. I was extremely um, I was startled and I couldn't believe that um, someone, an unknown stranger, could hack into my account so easily. Last week, Google traced the sabotage back to China and says the break-ins were part of a pattern of cyber attacks on human rights activists who criticized China. And pausing there just for a sec, can you recall another, prior to that case, uh, where a company of size, scale, reputation 
of Google publicly accused China and its government of hacking. No, uh, this was this was a landmark moment for a number of reasons. Like you said, yes, like Google comes out and they publicly admit that they'd been hacked, which was very avant-garde, right, for people to proactively say that at the time. Um, it was seen as, you know, shameful if you had been attacked. Uh, and so they, one, publicly come out with that. Two, that it was against the entire tech industry, right? Like everybody at this point had heard about Chinese attacks against defense contractors and government agencies and the defense industrial base. But to go against a, a huge chunk of Silicon Valley all at once, this was the kind of the first public knowledge of that. And yes, and the fact that they provided attribution was a, a totally new thing. And then they, um, they not only say it originates in China, they threatened to pull out of the country. And what what's your view of, of both that threat and what actually happened? The relationship with the United States and China is obviously incredibly complex. And from my perspective, the People's Republic is the place that Silicon Valley ethics go to die, right? That you have these companies that are very high-minded in their corporate missions and the statements they make and the way they relate to democracies, that then when it comes to China, the combination of kind of the the skill of the Chinese government in manipulating uh, companies and of gaining leverage, the amount of effort the Chinese put into hacking and infiltration, and then the overall economic importance of the country is this combination that, for whatever reason, companies often forget all of the things they have said in other places, uh, and they they act in a way that's completely contrary uh, to their corporate mission. And you know, at this time, Google had a search engine that was available in mainland China that was censored. Um, now, at the time, Google made the argument, and it's not a horrible argument, um, that it's better for Google to exist than nothing. Um, but you know, I think. This was seen by them as, you know, if they're going to cooperate with the Chinese on Chinese law openly to have the PRC then turn their intelligence agencies against the inside network of Google was just a step too far and that they were going to cut off official. And, and my understanding is, you know, they they turned off that censored uh, version and then the, the PRC blocked the rest of Google's products via the Great Firewall. And there's been this uncomfortable relationship between Google and China since then. Whereas China is still incredibly important to Google because that's where most Android phones are built. Google's Android products are still, uh, Android operating system is very popular there. It powers the vast majority of phones, although often in an unofficial capacity in a way that's not licensed from Google. Uh, and so there's like this real complicated back and forth that has continued since then. But I think at the time it was you know a very big statement. And I thought it is also one of the last times that we can I can think of a big tech company really standing up to China publicly. And let me it would take a step back and we've covered a decent span of time now. And um, you had a quote when you were speaking at the Newton Lecture Series, dividing our, our time into different eras, you know, comparing 2001, where very, compared to now, few people had internet access. I mean, security's gone from being a fun game to like a basic life safety issue, right? Like yeah. in 2001, um, I don't know what the number is, but you know, somebody can, can probably look it up while we sit up here. Um, but one, in 2001, you couldn't automatically solve bar bets like that just by looking at your phone. You had to actually, you look it up later. Um, but, but also, you know, what, like a billion people had internet access or 700 million people or something like that. I think in 1999, at some point in 1999, it was like 100 million people had internet access, right? Um, and for those people, the internet was like a fun thing where they could do some research, do some reading. And now the internet is a critical part of the lives of close to 3 billion people, right? And, um, and so it's security's gone from something where like 
you know, when the Morris Warren happened and the entire internet shut down, nobody died, right? That would not be true today if the internet just stopped working. Um, or if we had a worm that infected 90% of internet connected devices, people would die or people would lose their jobs or there'd be, there'd be mass chaos. And so security's gone from something that's just kind of like fun to something that's a responsibility. That doesn't mean it can't be fun when you do it, but you have to kind of sometimes step back and be like, oh man, uh, actually you are having a real impact, right? And then you referred to, for, for prosecutors and law enforcement, a, a, a case that's always discussed, the Morris worm, which is really the first time um, tempted to apply criminal law to an intrusion. This was a self-propagating code in 1988 that shut down the internet. And you said that when the Morris worm happened, the entire internet shut down and nobody died. That would not be true today if the internet just stopped working or if we had a worm that infected 90% of internet connections. People would die or people would lose their jobs or there would be mass chaos. Tell, tell me a little, explain that quote a little bit and where, where you think we are now um, compared to where we were when it comes to internet-related threats. Yeah, I mean, so when in that speech, I was kind of talking about the progression of our profession, of people who work in computer security or cybersecurity, as you guys say in D.C., um, or information security, as we say on the West Coast, uh, as, you know, first a hobby, then a job just like any other IT job, right, that is, like, important to support things that people are doing, um, but not super critical to effectively becoming a priesthood, right? That security has become this thing that underlies a huge chunk of our lives. And it's because of the success of the insertion of technology into every aspect of people's lives, top to bottom, that the same people might be doing it and we might be doing the same things, but the the importance of what we do around us has completely changed. And yes, I was using the Morris worm as a great example because, you know, that was a, a worm, as you pointed out, that was a, amazingly advanced for the time. It had multiple payloads. It could infect multiple different incompatible computer architectures. And it infected a a big chunk of, of the then nascent internet. And it was like a story among IT people in universities, but nobody died. There was no actual impact. And because of the way we have inserted technology in everybody's lives, uh, that is not true anymore. And, and kind of in, from my perspective, you know, the tech industry overall, we're really, really good at making technology useful for people to the point of where they start to rely upon it. But then we're not very good at making that technology trustworthy for them, right? And and there's multiple levels to that. There's the traditional security issue. There's kind of the privacy issues, which are about how you decide to gather up data and use it. Um, and then there's also the what you might call the trust and safety issues, which is, you know, we build these technologies where bad things can happen, and we often do so first, and we get them important first, and then we figure out how can people abuse them later. Um, and I, I think that's like they're a fundamental problem in the structure of how we build technology in Silicon Valley is that all of the thinking about the downsides happens way too late in the process and it makes it very difficult to fix it up. After working at, at Yahoo and then where you had one of the biggest thefts ever, maybe the biggest theft ever of uh, email related information by Russian criminals linked to and taking taskings from the Russian state, you then move to Facebook and are there as you're confronting an unprecedented attempt to manipulate the way individuals are thinking using so social media. And now you're at Stanford. And tell me a little bit about what, what you're doing at, 
Stanford and how you're working to tackle some of the problems that you've you've observed and confronted firsthand in your different industry jobs? I'm trying to do a couple of things at Stanford. One is, you know, our team is doing research in the misuse of the internet that I'm trying to hit the sweet spot between it being done in a timely manner uh, and being quantitative and qualitatively supportable enough to really inject a better level of accuracy into the discussion of these abuses, right? And so, like, specifically in the disinformation world, unfortunately, since 2016, uh, there's been a uh, belief among people that, uh, by people, I mean, really, just kind of mostly the U.S. media, that any kind of disinformation activity is uh, immediately impactful, can, can have all of these downstream impacts that are maybe immeasurable, and therefore, that you should do almost anything to stop it, right? And that that's not how we can handle any kind of abuse, right? Like, we have to really understand how do these abuses work? What kind of impact does it have? So then we can calibrate what our responses to it are. There's a lot of good academic groups doing this kind of work. The problem is the majority of them are on publisher parish kind of models where they have to be in peer-reviewed journals and the like. And so you're talking about maybe something coming out a year or two afterwards. Um, and so we've built this team to be able to do in the short term what is much more journalistic work of here's us exploring and uncovering a Russian disinformation campaign in Africa and getting it taken down so we have impact immediately that then can turn into a you know political science journal paper uh, a year or two later by the the PhDs who, who were on that team and so that's you know one of our goals is to try to just kind of inject a little more realism into the discussion of these abuses um, the second is to expand the discussion of what should be considered the responsibility of tech companies beyond the traditional information security into all of these other areas. And there's a parallel here with, as I talked about, uh, of where we were like in the late 90s and early 2000s in security, which is security was this super specialized field that was off in the corner, that was something you did last, uh, that was not deeply integrated into the product's lifecycle, and that didn't have an academic component uh, and wasn't training undergrads, right? And and that's where I feel like we are on the broader trust and safety issue. And when I talk about trust and safety, we're talking about abuses of technology, which is generally the technically correct use of a technology to cause harm without any hacking or violation of the rules of the system. Um, hacking is usually about making a computer do something it doesn't want to do. Abuse is making the computer do exactly what it is built to do, but the outcome of that is somebody gets hurt. Uh, and so one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to make that part of undergraduate education. And we're doing that by, I'm teaching a class at Stanford called Trust and Safety Engineering. Um, and my lectures are about all those other things that aren't really hacking, right? We have a lecture on hate speech, bullying and harassment. We talk about suicide and self-harm and suicide clusters online and people encouraging each other to commit suicide. Um, we have a, two lectures on child sexual abuse, which I, I know you've dealt with, but you know most people who don't haven't worked in trust and safety or law enforcement have never been kind of exposed to the, the true horror of what actually happens online every day for children. Um, we talk about terrorism and the like. And so we're we're putting that class together. We're going to make it free. We're writing a textbook that the book will also be free. There'll be a paper copy, but you'll be able to get it free online. Um, and the goal is to kind of capture all of this stuff that we know about how do the products we built, how they've been abused in the past, so that the next generation can make at least different mistakes uh, than the gener my generation. It is so important. You know, I know when I was working on my book and, and going back to early criminal cases and down the code, where I was just shocked by how many mistakes were repeated because people were not learning lesson and some of the same tactics and techniques 
you know, that going back to our earlier conversation that, that were prevalent in the 80s are still successful here in 2020. Yeah, right. And, and we had this problem in security. It's less of a problem in kind of traditional information security now because you have enough people whose career is around security and they've studied the stuff in the past. And what you really need is, you know, companies that build these products need to have somebody on staff that has some kind of tribal knowledge of all of the things that have happened before and then can look at what they are doing right now and then synthesize, oh, this is how it affects us, right? Um, and that's a real problem. Like Stanford, and one of the reasons I'm doing it at Stanford uh, is that there's probably no university in the world that has more responsibility than the, the current state of Silicon Valley than Stanford, right? And the, the university keeps on graduating out these 22-year-olds, you know, mostly men who come out and are like, oh, I have an idea. I'm going to make an app where you can take photos and then anonymously send those photos to an infinite number of women. What could possibly go what wrong? What could go wrong? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Well, here's the list. <laughs> <laughs> Let me move to a real life case that you're working on. So here we are, we're in a pandemic. Everyone's working for from home. Schools are suddenly teaching classes from home, meaning kids are using uh, some uh, services to have video chats in a way they never have before, along with employees. And you have Zoom, which take example, a company that was relatively small and just explodes in terms of usage. And I know they've, uh, they've publicly brought you on as a consultant and wondering in terms of tribal knowledge, <laughs> to use your phrase, it seems like Zoom is being exploited in, in many of the ways that, that one could predict. Um, although the explosion in its users from 10 million to over 200 million in you know a period of a couple of months, I think that was a little harder. <laughs> that was a little harder to predict, right? That's right. Yeah, there's there's really two totally different issues with Zoom. So like you said, uh, they brought me on as a consultant. So you know, full disclosure, I'm a paid consultant for the CEO of Zoom. And I got that job because I was tweeting about, uh, you know, this is the first time Twitter has been good for my career, um, <laughs> that I was tweeting about like the mistake Zoom had made and how I'd seen this pattern at companies before uh, and how effectively Zoom now needed to speed run in six months what uh, Microsoft and Facebook did over years and years, right? That they had this need to build up. And, and so I end up the next day getting a call from the CEO. He had called around some friends, found my cell phone number from, from a joint friend. And we had this long discussion about all the things he could do. I sent him this nice big email. And then he ends up announcing that they're going to do a bunch of the stuff that we had discussed. And I thought that was like, one, it that was somewhat of a, um, from my previous you know, CISO jobs, it was somewhat unique to have a CEO who put security first. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was like a, a unique experience for me uh, to see a CEO who's that. Um, but it, it became clear that, you know, they saw this as both an existential issue uh, as well as a potential form of long-term competitive advantage over their other companies, which is in the, if you want a company to care about security, safety, and trust, and privacy, then you want them to see it as a positive competitive advantage and a moat they can build. That's the way to get invested. Um, but anyway, there's, there's you know, kind of two classes of issues Zoom. One is the traditional security problems, right? And so Zoom had a bunch of bugs in their client and such. The truth is, is that the bug Zoom's at Generally, most of those bugs are the kind of things you find in mid-sized enterprise companies all the time. From my consulting days, if we went into any, you know, successful but not household name enterprise company and looked at their software, that's the exact stuff we'd find, like local privilege escalation, some remote code execution, using old libraries and the stuff like that. So let me just walk through that a little bit for for audience who's who's mixed in background. So 
you're saying this is this is what you should expect essentially from a lot of mid-sized companies and the, the problems included things like the way that Zoom was installed it took over admin privileges which means the highest privilege that you could have on a user's computer so you could get root access you could control the computer and that would allow someone to who wanted to abuse it to use your term to surreptitious you know, to put in bad programs without the user's knowledge, including the type of scheme we've both seen a lot of, which is taking over webcams or microphones. And then it also was found early that it was sending data to Facebook, even if you weren't logged into a Facebook account and routing some traffic through uh, China, kind of unbeknownst to users. And then there was, there were encryption issues um, where the default encryption, and this is probably a more complicated one, we could talk about it, but it the default is not to end in, to end encrypt, which means that p- people could, that messages in transit could be vulnerable. And then finally, the one that I think got the most publicity, in part because it has a good name, was Zoom bombing, where people were finding open meetings to join, and then they were flashing pornography or other things, you know, in front of kids, et cetera. That got a lot of a lot of media attention. And I focused on those and wanted to walk through what some of the issues were because I think you made an, you know, an important and provocative point, which is, yeah, this got exposed because Zoom grew so quickly, but this is actually businesses as usual, if I'm hearing you right, for a lot of medium-sized companies. Right. So that last part of Zoom bombing is a totally different problem. That's kind of my point. So, But you know, on the kind of core security issues, yes, it you you said this is what we expect. Unfortunately, our expectations of software of enterprise security are way too poor. Right? We should expect <laughs> better. Um, but the truth is, there's a massive disparity between the top ten uh, tech companies that people can name and the ten thousand next companies that build the software that all of our lives run on. Perhaps unbeknownst to us, right? And Zoom used to be in that second category, in that the people before COVID who knew about Zoom were, you know, CIOs and enterprise video conferencing teams, and the folks who would go out and do a bake-off between WebEx and BlueJeans and Microsoft Teams and Zoom, and then make a decision, you know, in a kind of enterprise bake-off. It wasn't a, a product that people are using every day. And yes, th- those kinds of products often have these problems if you're not part of like a Google or a Microsoft or a company that has thousands of security engineers based upon, and that generally comes for those big companies because they had a existential issue. For Microsoft, it came in the early 2000s with the trustworthy computing memo. With Google, it came after Aurora. Uh, you know, the, the Aurora attacks we were talking about caused a huge amount of investment by Google in security. But the vast majority of companies don't. So this doesn't mean Zoom shouldn't have done that. Like, they should have invested more in security earlier. Um, but those, you know, the Solving those problems is a little more pedestrian because what you have to do there is you have to build up a good team. You have to you know, improve your software development lifecycle so that security is built into multiple parts of the security lifecycle. You have to be able to handle outside bug reports more efficiently. So that's all the kind of stuff that I've been working on with them. And they have hired, you know, they have a new CISO. They have a new head of application security. They're building up their application security team. They've fixed up their bug bounty in a bunch of ways. And so, you know, there's still work to be done there. But that's kind of traditional InfoSec. But the the other issue they're facing is much closer to the way I was talking about, about the class, the trust and safety issue, which is that um, when... Zoom went, because of COVID, from being mostly an enterprise product that was provisioned and and bought and managed by IT professionals to something that Mrs. Smith, for her fourth grade class, would just go get a Zoom account and then go all of a sudden move a bunch of children onto Zoom. And that is not what the product was built for. And that that is the safety issue, which is 
Um, it, it turns out that, you know, the Zoom bombing or the meeting disruption problem, almost everything you needed to prevent that from happening existed in Zoom at the beginning of this year. It's just people didn't know it was there. Some of that stuff was buried in different IT settings. Some of it was available to consumers, but not in like the normal interface. You know, we've talked about that a lot in a lot of different contexts for companies, but this this goes to the whether or not you should have security by default, essentially, right? Right, and and the, the core problem that Zoom faced on this was they offer a freemium product, they offer a self-service, you can put a credit card product, and then they offer an enterprise product. All, almost all of their money is made on the enterprise product, right? It's made by selling a bank 100,000 seats, right? And then if you sell a bank 100,000 seats, that bank is going to use single sign-on they're going to have their IT team go and set all the little bits in the interface to make the default secure. They're going to do all the right things. If either, you know, because Zoom, one thing Zoom did was they gave out all these free accounts to schools. And so they kind of created this problem for themselves. And all of a sudden they gave all these accounts to schools where you might have the, the one IT person um, who might be a volunteer parent or might be part-time one of the teachers who, you know, just was totally slammed, did not know how to use the product, didn't know any of this stuff. And and by default, it did not walk them through, this is what you should be thinking. And so you, the, the other issue kind of for the schools especially, but a number of other institutions like churches and such, is they didn't have communication links set up to securely communicate out um, when this incredible transition started happening in March. Um, so this happened at our school where they actually, our kids' school, where they actually started just putting the links to Zoom meetings on the public website and the public calendar because there's no other good way to kind of get it in front of people. And then so you have then all of these people who are home and bored and malicious who would go and do things like scan the internet, um, scan through Twitter and Facebook, and look for anything that looks like a Zoom link, and then go trade that in private groups on Discord, private groups on Facebook, WhatsApp channels and the like, and they would trade these links back and forth and they would go disrupt them, right? Jump in and, you know, hopefully do something like just be annoying. In the worst cases, do things like show illegal, you know, child exploitation content, right? And the, I mean, this is this is kind of the, the core issue for Zoom was that a lot of their product management was focused on the space for which they made money, which is what you generally see from enterprise products, was the, the security features built for enterprises. Um, and becoming kind of a household consumer product overnight completely changed what their focus had to be. Uh, and so the work there, fortunately, because a lot of these features existed, was mostly about redesigning the interface and redesigning the, the user experience so that when you set up an account, by default, the settings are much more restrictive and you have to turn them down. And that uh, putting in the interface if something bad happens to make it much easier. It used to be very hard to report that something bad happened. Now it's much easier to say, this person did something bad, I want them kicked out, I want them reported to Zoom. Um, and then they had to build up their trust and safety team of the people who investigate that stuff and then work with law enforcement. To break it down a little bit, yeah, we have, so number one, you have a product that you kind of races to market and a company's building out and it has security flaws in it. I mean, there was a Princeton professor who, who characterized uh, Zoom and said, let's make this simple, Zoom is malware. And there he was referring, I think, to security flaws that would allow you to get access to things like the ability to use someone's webcam or microphone without their permission. So that's one bucket. So I know that professor. I think he he massively overstated that. Like things like local privilege escalation. So there was something like three or four New York Times articles that mentioned Zoom's installer having local privilege escalation on OS X. Every time there's a, a dot release of Mac OS, there's like a dozen local privilege escalation bugs, right? So we, we like, yes. They well, are actually, bugs. that's exactly what I wanted to push on a little bit is, is um, 
how do you, you taking it up a level, what do we do in terms of policy so that, because this is one example that got well publicized because the company exploded over, overnight, right? And so a lot of press attention. But to your point, there's thousands and thousands of other companies who have similar issues. What do we need to change the default so that security is there before it arrives and needs to be fixed on a consumer's computer? Yeah, it's really tough. I, you know, I think, I mean, the first is we, one of the problems we have in the computer security world is you hear about a handful of the failures like this that are public because people know about it. The vast majority of security failures are secret, right? Like, you know, this week, a bunch of companies are going to get broken into. The information that gets stolen is not going to touch the PII definitions of SB 1386 and the other state laws that require the disclosure of breaches that touch personal information. You're saying there the PII is personally identifiable information and that a lot of the laws are really triggered around whether someone gets things like your name plus your social security number, but that's not the issue here. That's right. And you and I have both worked a bunch of cases where companies have had important information taken, but um, it's not personal information, so therefore they don't have a disclosure requirement. And kind of culturally uh, and legally, nobody is encouraged to admit, like Google did back in 2010, nobody is encouraged to admit uh, we had a breach, even if that breach was was caught halfway or something. So I think the first thing we need to do is we need to build a kind of a cultural and legal permission for people to be honest about these issues. And the industry, I think we, we should continue to look for, and I'm not the first person to say this, but like the industry that does incredibly technically complex things and does so safely and has a culture of continuous improvement is the airline industry, right? And part of it is regulation. Part of it is that they have a regulator that actually understands stuff. So, you know, the National Transportation Safety Board has a level of technical knowledge of how airplanes work in a way that there is not a single institution, maybe other than the NSA or Cyber Command, in the U.S. government that has the same level of technical knowledge on the InfoSec world, right? So they have a, a regulatory structure of people who are real experts, and then they have a culture of continuous improvement, right? So, you know, obviously, if a plane crashes, there's a massive NTSB investigation. There's all this stuff that happens. But even on the close calls, if something breaks, if there's a human mistake, there is a culture of that being filed, that being looked at, that being discussed. Uh, and the legal structures to allow that to happen exist um, in the regulatory structures. I think we need to move to a world much closer to that on the security world side. Whereas when these mistakes happen, there is a discussion of what went wrong. And I'll use actually the example that you brought up. So when I was at Yahoo, actually, you know, the biggest breach of Yahoo stuff happened way before I got there, but there was a, a separate attack a couple of months after I got there that started a couple of months after I got there by a group of hackers working for the FSB for Russian intelligence that had broken and at first looked for a targeted set of people related to the near abroad Russian you know, ex-Soviet state oil and gas industry. Um, but then once we found them, that turned into them trying to grab as many passwords as possible uh, while we kick them out of the network, right? So this was a, a small group of pretty good hackers who were able to break in, um, but there's a lot of reasons why they were first able to break into Yahoo. And there's uh, another set of complex reasons of why they were able to stay. It took us weeks and weeks to get rid of them. A lot of those reasons go back basically to the age of the company uh, and a, a malinvestment in security over a, a decade. But after this breach comes out, there is a set of lawsuits against Yahoo, as is normal. And I end up, as you can imagine, getting subpoenaed for a bunch of these. And so I end up in going 
and having these very long discussions uh, with tons of lawyers in the room, uh, which for people who haven't been de- deposed, I can't recommend it, right? Um, but, you know, because you're, you're sitting there and the video is looking at you and everybody's, everybody's parsing every single word you said. And then there's 12 people in the room and every other person in the room is getting paid to be there except you. And so you're sitting there and they're asking me all these super detailed questions. They got thousands and thousands of emails and documents and they're putting these emails in front of me and these documents in front of me. And through this process of, of doing this with me and dozens of other people who are involved in these breaches, you can start to build out this idea of, okay, what were the root causes that caused you know, the ability for these people to be able to break into Yahoo and then the difficulty in kicking them out? Okay, that's fantastic. I'm, that is that is really useful knowledge, right? Because these FSB hackers, a couple of them have been arrested, but the, the main guy is actually still at large well, being protected yeah, by Russia. Protected by, exactly. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we can talk about our, our, our joint friend, Alexei. Um, so, you know, it's it would be super useful for everybody else to understand what happened inside of Yahoo. What happened to all of those transcripts, all of those documents, everything? Well, they do a deal where the the class action lawyers get like $45 million in lawyer fees. A bunch of Yahoo users end up getting like free credit monitoring, which makes absolutely no sense for a Yahoo breach, uh, plus like a a gift card, I think. Uh, And then all of that stuff gets sealed up by the court, right? So that, like, as a society, if you have something, a failure like that, to make that just then part of what is effectively like a legal game just to move money around with some class action attorneys in Florida... And then all of the fact-finding is then sealed up and made useless once the money is moved around. That is just like the silliest way to try to address an incredibly complex issue. Like imagine the 737 MAX crashes and that's how we handled it. And we have no idea of what actually failed on the 737. There's no NTSB report, everything, because Boeing ended up paying off some lawyers in Florida. We would find that ridiculous and and airlines would be much less secure. And so I think that's like one of the core kind of regulatory things we got to do is we've got to make the discussion of what went wrong public. And we also have to create a model where people are encouraged to come out when they have a close call or when they have a breach that doesn't touch PII, but maybe touch some kind of intellectual property. We, we, we need to have both a carrot of certain protections, maybe, you know, and you're better positioned to have opinion on this, but maybe you have kind of um, statutory penalties for certain kinds of breaches and such. So it's not like a four year class action lawsuit, uh, but we need to have an encouragement of a, of a carrot. And then you have to have a stick if people keep it secret. And then we really what I would love to see is there really should be a 400-page report of what happened at Yahoo um, because then everybody else can read that and be like, oh, man, now I see the things I have to do to prevent it. Yeah, and that's and famously with Yahoo as well, and, and we see this is, according to reporting, this gap between what you're finding or recommending as chief information security officer and what the CEO who's facing a lot of pressures about a, a business that's losing customers uh, did in terms of security. And I think you said earlier that you, you know, in your career, you have not worked for a lot of CEOs for whom security was the top, the top priority. Right. And that's, that's kind of, there's also people have talked about and how exactly you calibrate this, I think is a little complicated, but I think it's a good direction, effectively a Starbox for security where you make the board and you make the CEO liable in a personal way for security that they aren't right now. You're talking about the Sarbanes-Oxley law that essentially said that you have to personally sign as an officer of the of the company, that you're meeting certain financial controls, essentially. And you're saying we need some type of law like that that, that makes CEOs and boards personally accountable 
for security. That's right. Yeah, I think so. Because what keeps on happening is, you know, the compensation structure for CEOs is built only around financial metrics. And so, you know, this is just a truism for any industry, right? But you, you get what you measure and to the detriment of everything you don't measure and you don't bonus, right? And so if you're only bonusing based upon the, the short-term financial metrics and not upon the longer-term risks, then you're going to end up, you know, management is going to go all one way. And, you know, there are companies where security is integral. It's just, it's it's extremely rare, honestly. Like the vast majority of companies, there is a, the existence of a CISO is in some ways negative because you've created this executive through whom you kind of place all of this risk, but they don't have the ability to make the decisions that actually bend the risk, right? And so, it, you know, from my perspective, a CISO shouldn't be the person who's the risk manager. The, the risk manager is really the CEO and the owners of the different product lines. And a big enough company, it, it's not the CEO, it's the people who own the business, right? Who make the real business decisions. So former CISO says CISO shouldn't get fired after security incidents. Well, <laughs> I didn't say that. I'm just, I'm just saying like, we're in this weird place where you have this executive whose only job is to think about the downside, but they, they never have the ability to make kind of the big picture decisions of balancing kind of long-term growth against risk. No, I think that's that's a really important point in all seriousness. And it's part of, you know, big change we've seen in, in, in our lifetimes just over the last 10, 15 years. First, there really wasn't a chief information security officer. And then the C and CISO was supposed to indicate that they were in the C-suite. And in most companies, they're not really in the, in, in the C-suite. And then even in the C-suite, what you're saying is they, they need to be empowered and that might require creating by law, if I'm hearing you right, regulatory or other risk that caught, you know, forces a company when doing a rational calculus to, to prioritize security and give them the authority they need to, to re- reach the right risk decisions, not just for the company, but for society. Yeah, no, you put that much better than me. I, you know, when a young person asks me, how do I, you know, Alex, how do I become a CISO one day? My answer is don't. <laughs> right, like the, the the place you want to be is like the senior director of security role, uh, where you can run a large team, you can have huge impact, um, but you're not seen as having that responsibility. Because being a CISO in 2020 is like, imagine if you're a CFO and Sarbanes Oxley has passed, but you haven't invented double entry accounting yet, and everybody's allowed to spend whatever money they want, and you can just advise. Like that's not how companies work, right? Like the CFO moves all of the money in a public corporation. Like you are not allowed to spend 10 cents without some kind of infrastructure they have put in place approving that. But the CISO sits over in the corner and is almost all reactive and it's very difficult to know, even know the decisions that are being made at any moment that are going to accrue a huge amount of security risk. And I, that's the kind of thing that we have to adjust. Because you're right, like, you know, every big company has this secret meeting, it's not secret, but it has this like this, this small meeting usually on Monday mornings at the beginning of the week, usually in the conference room of the CEO. And those are the people who actually run the company. They're not necessarily all the direct reports to the CEO, right? But it's like the inner circle, the cabinet of people who are making that decision. And it is extremely rare to hear about a CISO or really any executive who handles downside risk being in that meeting. And if you're not in that meeting, then in the end, you're just there for the cleanup. You're not able to actually bend the curve. Let's uh, let's move actually to Facebook, and I want to I want to do the same divide we did a little bit when talking about Zoom, which is you have a series of issues, and we talked about them with with Yahoo that really have to do with the security of a product, and then you have abuse of a product or it being used in ways that you didn't anticipate. At Facebook, you had more authority on paper. You were the chief 
chief security officer. And while you're there, you end up um, encountering, as, as we talked about a little bit, Russian interference in the 2016 election and seeing a, a type of meddling that I think we'd seen on smaller scales, but really never on a scale like this before, in part because there was never a platform that, that had this type of impact like, like Facebook did. So tell me a little bit you know, what your proposed approach would be to deal with Russian interference and how that differed from the approach of other executives. And also just going to our conversation, were you in the right meetings or at the table so they had a chance to hear from you? Yeah, so, you know, I the vast majority of my job at Facebook was the traditional information security job, right? And and that was actually in, in some ways much easier than it was at Yahoo because Facebook had money. You know, a lot of the core problems at Yahoo is the fact that Yahoo was effectively a dying company by the time I joined, but by the time Marissa took over as CEO, you know, there's an argument made that nobody could have turned Yahoo around. But, you know, whether that's true or not, by that point, like, the investment in technology had really stalled out for about a decade. And that wasn't true at Facebook. Facebook was at the height of, you know, continuing to grow, um, had all new technology, had built all this stuff internally, um, did not have, you know, when I got to Yahoo, there was a server that hadn't been rebooted for 10 years, which a bunch of people were like really proud of what that meant about the, you know, the quality of the data center and the fact that it hadn't lost power in 10 years. And to me, it was like, well, that just means you're not enforcing any kind of patch policy, right? If like, <laughs> this is, uh, you're not patching for 10 years. Um, and uh, that was not true at Facebook, right? Like there's much more of a culture of kind of the core security. So that was most of my job. But the where I got pulled into the Russia stuff was because, you know, one of the things that I inherited and then really grew is we had a threat intelligence team whose entire job it was to look for uh, advanced attackers first uh, attacking the company, right? So just looking for exactly the kind of attack that the Chinese did against Google, but then also abusing the platform to cause harm. And coming out of 2016, like one of my core beliefs is as a society, we have really messed up by not having the equivalent of a 9-11 commission look at what happened in 2016. Because there's actually this fascinating kind well, of Well, there parallel. is this Mueller report. Right. Yes, I've, I've, I've heard of it. Um, uh, I'm in a couple of the footnotes. I think I'm not even in the footnotes. Yes, it's 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 amazing the things that uh, we do, like that we think are not going to be that important, and then are going to be enshrined in history forever. I'm sure you're in the same place. Do we need another report, or do we need to mandate that people read the Mueller uh, report, or do you think there's more information to be discovered? Well, I, it, I think it's too late now. I, I think, you know, as you and I know, Robert Mueller's goal was to understand what happened to look for criminal behavior. The Mueller team did not do kind of a top to bottom analysis of what are the root causes that allowed this to happen. Right. And that was what the 9-11 commission did after September 11th. And in fact, that's uh, one of those, it's, as a result, actually it wasn't that commission. Uh, it was a, a different commission, the WMD commission, but that, that the division I led at the Justice Department, National Security Division was created as one of those. Oh, really? Um, oh, yeah. Recomm recommendations. So I take your point. Yeah, that it's, you need a top to bottom and think about how both government structured, how the private sector is structured. And we still haven't done that. And we haven't. And and there's this interesting parallel between 2016 and 9-11, which is, you know, the 9-11 report's got this, a lot of it is about the failures of government to communicate internally, right? Um, and uh, there's a whole section on the lack of institutionalized imagination, that there weren't people who were thinking ahead of, you know, what are all the bad things that could happen and how should we pre preemptively think about the ways our, our adversaries might act. And we have the exact same thing happened in 2016, except, you know, in 9-11, like, the responsibility there is almost completely in the public sector, right? Like, protecting the, our country from terrorists, 
protect keeping people from getting on planes with weapons, that was clearly a government responsibility. Whereas in 2016, now you have this much more distributed responsibility between folks in the government, but also the private tech platforms, but also the, the media and the campaigns um, themselves, uh, who perhaps should report if somebody re you know, reaches out to them from the Russian embassy. And there was this failure of institutionalized imagination. And part of it was that the kind of the belief of what was a what was a government going to do in attacking technology was based upon what we had seen in the past, which was taking over accounts, sending malware, spear phishing, getting into private groups of dissidents, right? That kind of secret police slash, you know, Aurora type attacks was the focus of the threat intel team that we had inside of Facebook. It was the focus of the entire kind of in, you know, threat intelligence, uh, private sector, the, the Mandiants and the CrowdStrikes and the like, and it was the focus of the U.S. intelligence services, which makes sense because a lot of these people actually come from kind of the same pipeline of folks. And so, like, that was kind of the core problem of Facebook because we had people who were looking for all those kinds of things and were very successful. We, we uncovered a, a Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps attack against the State Department, um, that we spotted and then helped wrap it up in a bunch of places. Um, we we had a bunch of kind of uh, different attacks against like power infrastructure that we discovered by a number of different actors. Um, and so we're really good at that. And then we and nobody else was paying attention to the idea of subtly manipulating the conversation through completely non-technical means, just by creating fake accounts and creating memes and you know uh, spicy conversation. Um, and there was a kind of this you know, kind of a failure of institutionalized imagination, both within my team, um, but then kind of in general as well. Yeah, and on that, on incentives, um, there's, there's a, a memo purportedly written by you that was leaked that says, this is while you're still at Facebook, that says, we need to listen to people, including internally, when they tell us a feature is creepy or point out a negative impact we're having in the world. We need to deprioritize short-term growth and revenue and to explain to Wall Street why that is okay. We need to be willing to pick sides when there are clear moral or humanitarian issues. And we need to be open, honest, and transparent about our challenges and what we are doing to fix them. And what I wonder is uh, on that quote, you know, why would a private company do that? Going back to your 9-11, what changes do we need structurally to make that in, in the interests of, of a private company do? Or is, it, is it, or is it something that a private company will ever do? Do we need some other solution? Yeah. Uh, so first off, this is how you know Facebook's becoming a government, is that all of our private internal <laughs> communications are leaking. Welcome to the club. I remember <laughs> you. <laughs> it used to hit us on transparency, and I would tell you, I think everything I ever say becomes public. Right, right, exactly. Yes, one day there'll be a Mark Zuckerberg presidential library uh, that'll have all my email in it. Um, It'll be online. Yes. <laughs> Perfect, yes. Yeah, I, you're, you're right. There's a core problem in Facebook that is reflected throughout Silicon Valley is, again, you get what you measure, right? And and what does a company like Facebook want? It, it wants to build products that people like. It wants to be impactful, right? So, like, this is the term you hear in Silicon Valley all the time is impact. We're having impact. We're having impact, right? Um, and impact is generally measured in a product, I guess, of how many people are using it, how often they're using it, and then maybe some metrics about whether they're enjoying it or not, Right. It turns out none of those metrics measure whether or not your product is good for people uh, or whether or not you're accruing risk that maybe it's good for people for a while and then all of a sudden there's some kind of black swan event happens and you're really bad for people and that you weren't you didn't notice that, that risk had been accruing that entire time. And I think that is a core problem. And at Facebook, it was, you know, that was embodied in a team called the growth team, which was the product team whose job it was to get people to 
want to use Facebook and, and also to, to get the more use of the product around the world. Um, now, m- most of the U.S. issues, I think, are less about growth, but that is like the core of a lot of the international issues, such as violence in Southeast Asia and like, was the expansion of the product out into all of these use cases and languages uh, that we were not ready for well before uh, you know, we should have, and not kind of predicting the kinds of ways people would use the product and, and understanding the geopolitical and cultural issues that had already existed. Um, but in the U.S., a lot of it was, you know, we're, we're going to give people what they want, and if you give people, it turns out what people want is not necessarily what's good for them. Do you let your kids use <laughs> some of these products unmonitored? Uh, well, not unmonitored. I, right. So on the kid issue, I think that's a, a whole other thing that because of, I don't know how it is for you guys, but we have blown through our screen time allotment through <laughs> yes. 2027 at this point, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> we, we yielded to the inevitable, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I. this is where I think, yeah, I read some good stuff, which I totally agreed with, uh, kind of in the spring of parents need to forgive themselves for not being fantastic parents right now because we're, we're living through history and we have to do the best we can just to keep our family safe. If that means your kids are watching YouTube, that's okay. Uh, but now we're transitioning that maybe this is the new normal for quite a while and we're going to have to come up with uh, a better kind of rule. So, you know, I mean, the you, kids using technology, I think, is actually much more complicated. I'm not one of those people who just like if they're in front of a screen, period, that they're rotting their brains. Um, but there is certainly positive things they can be doing, even if they are fun things like playing a, a video game that actually stimulates your mind versus just kind of media consumption, right? There have been a lot of stories about some of the designers not letting their kids use these products because they are designed to addict. That That's how you build users, and it's particularly powerful with children whose brains are still developing. What do you, what's, what's your view on this? So, I mean, we put limits on screen time. Um, I mean, I think like the most addictive thing that my kids are allowed to do that we try to limit is YouTube uh, because it's just, it's, you know, it's passive media consumption and YouTube is very, very good at, their machine learning is very good at putting media in front of you, that in front of kids that is real, that they want to see. And so that's the kind of thing I think you absolutely have to set limits. On the, you know, when I was talking about Facebook and Russia, that was more about adults, of adults wanting kind of information that reinforces their own beliefs, right? That that, you know, creating an information environment where people are able to seek out and live within a a bubble of information that only reinforces their own beliefs, um, that that's the kind of thing that was not being measured and that was very impactful. How do you distinguish between, yeah, disinformation, misinformation, fake news, as you're, as we're using some of these terms, versus what I think you're talking about when searching for things that confirm your own bias, that might be real news and real information, but you're only seeing a piece of it. It's like the old analogy with the elephant, the blind man and the elephant, you're only touching one one piece, and it's hard from that to, to determine what's true. That's right. And yes, and I think this is all a much more complicated kind of philosophical discussion than people have generally given it credit for, which is, you know, the vast majority of Russian activity in 2016 was not what you can reasonably call fake news, right? So, you know, there's really two big chunks to their information operation. One is the pure online operation by the Internet Research Agency and other related organizations, um, which was mostly not about the election. It was mostly about political topics. And the vast majority of their output is not falsifiable claims of fact, right? Like, they're doing things like creating fake accounts, um, of part of an anti-immigration group, and then they're saying, making kind of extreme political statements about immigration um, that, for the most part, are not things that are falsifiable, right? And so, you know, it is disinformation in that these people are working in a coordinated fashion to hide their identities and then to amplify their message well beyond what would normally be seen by people. But it is not 
fake news and it is not like a lie. And then the other part of the big information operation was the GRU operation, the hack and leak, right? And again, the core facts that they were able to put out were true, right? Like they had real email from John Podesta. They had real emails from Debbie Wasserman Schultz. It is that the one, the selective leaking of things to tell a story was part of the disinformation. Even though they weren't faking these documents, that they were able to kind of frame it up. And then they were also able to drive a level of coverage of those topics well beyond what they should have. Now, but this is why I also talk about like, this is an all of society thing because the real target of the GRU hack and leak was the mass media. It was not social media. Just like North Korea with Sony, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And so in both cases, you can call it disinformation because of the inauthenticity of the identities of who's pushing it and their ability to get the coverage. But in both cases, it was based upon like an actual true fact. And this is why I think people over-discuss things like deep fakes and stuff about the creation of truly false pieces of evidence because you know most of the most useful, uh, the most effective information operations that we have ex- examples of are based upon a kernel of truth that is then spun and amplified and twisted in a way that is difficult to call fake. You know, you've said before that one of the fundamental issue that Facebook faces is that there is no law to tell them or any other social media platform what is or is not allowed, that there's no fundamental privacy law in the United States. Would that extend to these content issues as well? And is it better if the government is setting rules in this area that that treads on freedom of speech, or should it be up to private social media platforms? I mean, that's a complicated question. I think, you know, just realistically in the United States, the vast majority of content that people don't like on social media is First Amendment protected, right? So we're never realistically going to end up with um, direct government regulation in this space. I think the place where I think government regulation would be good would be to encourage the companies to be more thoughtful about the impact of certain abuses that are not about political speech, right? Like the the misinformation, disinformation is the hardest place because you have this spectrum, the spectrum of disinformation to political speech within the Overton window is incredibly blurry and it is very dangerous for a government and a democratic society to say, this is where the line is. Well, let me push on that just for a sec because you've said Mark Zuckerberg is mistaken in his view that interfering with posts by politicians amounts to censorship. What do you think of Twitter's policy, which has gone in a different direction to say, hey, there, there are facts and we're going to use a fact-checking label on certain tweets. Yeah, and I actually think Twitter's policy here has been much smarter. I think Zuckerberg's gone into a defensive crouch and that he's been really way too stubborn about the core decision around labeling politician tweets. You know, From my perspective, one, I, I do think we have to be careful about half trillion to trillion dollar corporations taking down speech by candidates in elections or democratically elected leaders, that, that that's like a very dangerous place to go. But that doesn't mean that the companies don't have their own First Amendment right to label speech as they see fit. And I think that the, the Twitter's, at least their announced model, I don't think their enforcement is incredibly good, but at least their announced model of we will allow a piece of speech generally to exist as long as it's not causing direct harm. You know, this is different if somebody's like calling for a person to be harmed or something. But if it's a political statement that is a misstatement of fact, that it can exist, but we're going to reduce the product affordances that allow it to be amplified. So you turn off, you know, retweets and stuff like that. And we're going to use our First Amendment right to label it as we believe this is not true. You can separate out silencing the voice of people and then adding your own voice to it because you think it's wrong. And I think the companies need to think a lot more about that second option. 
What about, you, you referenced the size of the companies, just switching topics, but not entirely, because I think it is driving some of the movement. I mean, it's, is Facebook a monopoly? Is it too big? Should it be broken up? Yeah, so I mean, I, I am not, as you very well know, I'm neither a lawyer nor an antitrust expert. So <laughs> I'm not going to speak as to like how you define a monopoly. What I will say is there are some platform abuses that scale with size and some that don't. And so I think this is actually a really complicated analysis here because you know the bigger companies have more resources and the ability to kind of have to spend that fixed cost on an investigations team, on an ML team and an engineering team and in product management to fight abuses. And in a case where the abuse does not necessarily scale with the size of the network, that can be really effective. But then things like disinformation do. And so, you know, I it, it, I don't think there's like a simple answer here. I, I think, you know, one of the problems we have as a society is we're only paying attention to like three platforms. There's very little discussion of all the bad things that happened on all the other platforms. And part of this is because a lot of what we know about these abuses come from the companies themselves. But let me just push a little bit. Is the industry competitive? You've been inside it. Um, and you had a quote saying you can't solve climate change by breaking up ExxonMobil and making 10 Exxon mobiles, you have to address the underlying issues, which I thought was was interesting. So I think in that quote, right, you're suggesting that, uh, again, that we need some fundamental regulation about what's allowed and what's not allowed, and it doesn't have to do with size of, of companies. But putting that to one side, is there competition in, in social media space? Is it healthy from what you can see? Well, I mean, there is competition, I think. But yes, it, it is true that it is very difficult to compete against Facebook, right? Um, and uh, I think, you know, there is probably, there's not a lot of venture capitalists on Sand Hill Road that are going to throw a bunch of money at a company that says we're going to go direct at Facebook. You will see them back, like, Musical.ly, which became TikTok, uh, and other companies that have, like, a totally new direction. But those VCs are also thinking to themselves, one of the ways I get paid out is we make this threatening enough to Facebook that Zuckerberg make, writes a check. But on the on the size issue, something I want to say is like, you know, you referenced the Mueller report. Pretty much everything in the Mueller report that is about Facebook came from our team, right? It didn't come from Mueller's people. Like we found all this stuff, the GRU activity, the IRA activity, did this big investigation, sent a lawyer to go brief, said special counsel office, swore out an affidavit, special counsel office comes back with a warrant, um, and now we had this whole package that we were able to turn over to the special counsel's office of all the data, and that becomes a big chunk of the, of the Mueller report. Now, obviously, they did tons of work in other areas um, and tons of work of exploring Concord management and the like, but of the actual things that happened on Facebook, I don't think there's a single fact in there that didn't come from our team finding it and turning it over voluntarily. That is one of the challenges of having this discussion is that when you read the Mueller report, you only read about a handful of companies. It's because those are companies that have threat intelligence investigation teams um, that went and proactively turned stuff over. We just had this report last year of an attack called secondary infection uh, with a K, which was a six-year Russian operation that hit 300 different platforms, right? And so part of the problem of this discussion is we assume that it's only on the big platforms when it turns out that's not true. We're just only looking at the data from the big platforms because a smaller company doesn't have a team going and turning this stuff over proactively. So when it comes to security, you have too big to fail, but when it comes to security and monitoring social media, you might be too small to succeed? Well, see, this is the problem. It's, it's like, I think it's a, it's, it's a difficult analysis because let, let's say, you know, when people talk about breaking up Facebook, they talk about uh, Instagram and WhatsApp being broken off, right? Which I think is like the most realistic. 
it's not so realistic to break up Instagram itself or break up the Facebook app, but you can break the corporation up. A company the size of what would be an independent Instagram should be able to afford to have this capability, right? The problem is, is there's not a lot of encouragement to do so. And in fact, the way things have moved since 2016 is there's a number of companies that have had massive disinformation problems and the like who have never said anything publicly and they've never got any notice. And so it's working out pretty well for them not to have people looking. Um, and so I think we need to have an incentive structure that the smaller companies have an incentive structure to have teams that are proactively working on this. We probably need industry-led coalitions to make this easier, right? Um, this is something that I think, you know, Facebook and Google have not done well enough, is building the equivalent of, like, the FSI SAC for the tech industry where you have... That's the financial services program Information for sharing, sharing and for... analysis <laughs> center. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Last acronym, I'm sorry. And that's, uh, and that's been codified by law. There are legal protections for sharing information through the structure of an ISAC to prevent antitrust concerns. It's actually an exemption from antitrust. Right, and actually I think we probably need legislation here because there is an ECBA SCA issue. You know, there is issues with different kind of privacy laws around the company sharing anything that could be user data. And so we, we probably need the, the carve out of the ability of the companies to work together. But I, I would like to see a model where the big companies are much more aggressive about helping the smaller ones out with their work. And, and then we need to figure out like a reasonable way for the government to get involved. Now, that's actually really hard here because it's difficult to think of a way that a government agency can do these investigations under, you know, without giving them a, a massive transfer of data that we have rejected as a society, especially post-Snowden. And so that, that, I think, is the much more difficult part. And uh, because there's not enough to cover, <laughs> as we've seen, but we also have this significant, when it comes to uh, social media platforms, extraordinarily significant action that the, uh, that the president has taken, President Trump, in using executive order to ban two of the largest competing foreign social media platforms, TikTok and WeChat. Um, what do you think uh, of that action? Yeah, I, there are absolutely legitimate concerns about Chinese uh, companies making apps that are used by a wide variety of American consumers. There's a lot of legitimate issues around infrastructure companies and us buying things like Huawei routers. The problem is, I think, in a functioning democracy, we create rules, we have findings of fact, and then things come at the end. And it's pretty clear here that the president just wanted TikTok gone and everything else was a, a post hoc rationalization. Um, and so I'm actually really dismayed by what I see coming out of the administration because this is a legitimately important issue and it's being turned into a bit of a joke and something that is not going to be respected as setting international norms because it, there's also this component of a kind of a clear personal bias of Trump against the people on TikTok that don't like him. And, uh, you know, my hope is that in a next administration that this is something that we can have like a much more rational process around. Yeah. So it may, it may ultimately have been a, a, a correct result, but, but process matters, fairness matters, and you don't see it here. Right. Process matters if only because, you know, for the last decade, the United States government alongside our tech companies have been fighting for the idea of an open internet where American companies are allowed to operate overseas. And so, you know, if, if we're going to have data protection rules that we enforce, then that's great. And then that means that there will be other countries that we will negotiate the, how that works. For us just to say we're going to force the local sale of uh, an American subsidiary, you know, the, the European regulators who have been wanting to do this for years, the Indian regulators, they are loving this, right? Because the United States has pretty successfully pushed back on the idea that you have to 
nationalize every uh, multinational that operates out of Silicon Valley. And Trump has overturned a decade of work on the open internet on its head. Yeah, it's fascinating. So if you think about it as the big strategic battle, you have the US championing open internet, that data should be free. And you have China championing a model that says it needs to be within your nation's boundaries. And that data is more secure if you don't allow it to, to travel. And in, in some ways, we've, we have this tactical uh, move here, but strategically, it's moving the world towards the Chinese model. And I'm curious, just as, as we wrap on this, this happens at the time, it's you know, roughly two weeks after the Schrems 2 decision. So this is a landmark case in the EU uh, about the rules by which companies can transfer data. And the European Union has said, you can't transfer data to the United States because the legal regime in the United States is not sufficiently protective of, of privacy concerns, which also seems to be an opinion that moves towards a world of walls and data localization. The timing with this and the Schrems 2 decision, I think, is amazing and demonstrates that there's an alternate universe in which the United States and Europe let go of the narcissism of small differences and came up with a unified data protection ideal uh, in the free world and then enforce that against countries like China that have a completely different view of free expression and freedom from surveillance. Um, and instead, we're doing this kind of slapshod movement against China. We're not getting the Europeans to follow us. Um, and so we're getting the worst of both worlds. And I think it is just a really bad way for us to try to maintain the competitiveness of our industry and to to make an internet that reflects the norms, the democratic norms that we like. Alex Davis, it's been great having you with us today and covered a wide range of issues, but I think it it becomes critically clear why we need people like you who are both fluent in policy and also understand the technology. Thank you. Oh, well, thanks, John. I feel the, the same about you. Um, looking forward to having a discussion like this again. Cyberspace is presented by CAFE. Your host is John Carlin. The executive producer is Tamara Supper. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the CAFE team is Adam Waller, Matthew Billy, Sam Oserstaden, David Kurlander, Noah Azalai, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. The theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Today's episode was brought to you in collaboration with Brooklyn Law School's Blip Clinic. And I'd like to thank Amanda Kadish, Isabella Russo Tisi, Alice Abel, Megan Smith, James Sanderson, and Ryan Blum for their help with research. I hope you found John's conversation with Alex Stamos informative. To listen to future episodes of Cyberspace, consider joining the Insider community. You'll get access to the full slate of exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with Ann Milgram, the United Security podcast hosted by Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein, the Words Matter podcast hosted by Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart, bonus material from Stay Tuned, audio essays from me and Ellie Honig, and more. You can try the membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider and get access to the full archive of content. That's cafe.com slash insider.